All right. So if you had your finger uh, there at Exodus 12, that's kind of where we're going to pivot off from. But um, as many of you know, you had opportunity to be at First Baptist. If you don't, um, praise the Lord for this morning. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot that we could talk about that went into everything that happened today that you could talk to us afterwards about. We'd love to share. Uh, but I'm just, it, it's kind of surreal. Um, I don't think it'll hit us until we meet for the first time apart from First Baptist in September. Um, and we're just, church, we're just thankful to the Lord for what He's done. Um, we've, we have prayed, these brothers in here have prayed for years for this. Um, and I wish I could express it in better words to you than what I'm expressing now, but just want to be thankful for what the Lord's done. But uh, churches, we have seriously considered the fact that we are going to be meeting and coming together on Sundays. There is one thing I hope that you have seen that we do not do here. And maybe you don't because you might be newer to the faith or maybe you have noticed it and you have thought about this. But we have not partook of the Lord's Supper here. We haven't done it, not once. And uh, there was reasons that went into that that I don't need to go into right now. Um, but we, we are now finding ourselves in need to do that. And we are going to spend the next two weeks presenting to you uh, what the Lord's Supper is. Why on earth would we even consider doing it? Uh, why on earth we would do it the way that we're going to do it? The, the, the frequency that we're going to do it? All sorts of questions that you probably have about the Lord's Supper and about what we would want you to know and to believe and to practice, um, we hopefully can answer in the next few weeks. So it's going to be what we're going to be doing the next two weeks because church, as we come up to that first Sunday in September, we're going to be partaking. And I want it to be an absolute benefit and joy for you to partake in the supper as a church and as a body and to actually know what you're doing when you do it. That Jesus Christ would not be honored arbitrarily. He would be honored with intentionality from your heart. So we're going to spend the next two weeks going through that. And so uh, the, the, today, I'm just, I didn't come up with this title. I'm going to thank Nick for this one, okay? So I'm just going to lay out the title right at the beginning. You might think it's a little over the top, but whatever. We're going to call this Lord's Supper, it's practice, nature, and purpose. So in short, we're just going to talk about the Lord's Supper. We're going to go through Scripture. We're going to see what the Bible has to say about the Lord's Supper. Do we even, under, do we even understand what that is? Do we, do we have any kind of background to it? Because um, as we're coming up on these, on these two weeks, I think that should be the first question in your mind. And even some of you in here who have been Christians for a while, you may not even understand fully the weight and the reality of it. And brother, and I can attest to that myself. I, I, I've studied for as long as the Lord has had me since I was 19, and I am still growing in my understanding of the Lord's Supper and still growing in my understanding of its significance. And so I wouldn't think it would be a wrong thing to consider to ask you, what is it? And what does it actually mean? And what benefit does it actually have for you? Or does it have a benefit at all? It, 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 do we just do it when we feel like it? Do we partake only when we feel like it? Can we partake of it anywhere? I mean, all sorts of questions begin to abound when you ask what it is and why we do it. And we need to be able to have answers for those things. We need to be able to go to Scripture. Because when Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood, do this. Well, that, that kind of beckons upon you as a people to do it. But you need to understand why. You need to know what the purpose is. You need to know, is there benefit for this? Is this meant to bless you as God's people? We need to ask all, these, all of these questions. So I hope that this will be a firm foundation for us to jump off to so that next week we would be uh, reminded of the serious nature of what we're doing and I hope to do that today too, but primarily what I'm going to be doing is I want to lay a solid theological foundation for what the Passover is, give it a, or excuse me, the Lord's Supper is with the backdrop of the Old Testament in the Passover, and then talk about some of the uh, different elements and the different things in the Supper. So here's how I'm going to break this up. And I don't expect you to remember all this because this is just simply for you to see that there's going to be a little bit of structure for this. So here's how we're going to do this. 
just because I love biblical theology, I think this is the best way to do this. You need a backdrop for how we get here, right? So if I'm flipping my Bible open and I get to Matthew, I didn't start there, right? I flipped a lot of pages. Some of you, that's a lot like you're passing through names you've never seen. You think they're from a different religion, right? So when you hit Matthew, it's not the beginning, right? It's the beginning of something else, but it's not the beginning of God's story. So when Jesus says, you know, here's my body, here's my blood, do this in remembrance of me, he's not pulling these things out of thin air. These, these have an origin, they, and these, these things have a place in God's story that if we don't get the backdrop, brother, it'd be like the gospel to you. It would almost mean nothing to you. Uh, you know, what is good news if you don't think good news is necessary? Well, what is the Lord's Supper if you don't see the Lord's Supper fitting into God's story? So we're going to look at the backdrop. We're going to look at Old Testament and then we're going to see how it comes into the New Testament and then what Jesus and the apostles have to say about the Lord's Supper and how it fits in with the Old Testament. So first you got the backdrop, Old Testament to New. And then we're going to get into the thing itself, what I'm going to call the act. We're going to talk about the Lord's Supper and how we're doing it. The, the things that are in the Lord's Supper, its elements, the process by which we're going to do the Lord's Supper, and then the frequency of what we're going to do when it comes to partaking of the Lord's Supper. And then the last two things are going to be the uh, both ends of the spectrum. There is warning in Scripture about the Lord's Supper. And when we get through these first two, you're going to understand why. You're going to understand why the Bible would come and give you a warning. And it's going to do so in two different parts of an examination. A warning and then what I'm going to call a fencing or a barricading or protecting the Lord's table. And then the last, brethren, for us, the, the one I really want to get to is the benefits. And that's the one I want to get to the most because I guarantee you most Christians think there is zero benefit of them taking the Lord's Supper. And that's to our shame. We don't think that Jesus gave us something for the church and we think it's just a nice fancy ritual that we do with no benefit for the life of the body. And I want to kill that idea. So that's how we're going to go through this church. We're going to go through that in, in, in four chunks. And I, I'm not making any promise to get through it quick. So you need to buckle up. You need to be ready to do some gymnastics, do some aerobics in the Bible. Let's stretch our understanding, but let's see what God would have to say, and then let's embrace it. Let's find joy in it. Let's, let's do what God would have of us. So as we begin, if you were camping out next to this, that's where we're going to start. And here's why I want to start here. As I'm going to be able to show you, hopefully through Scripture, be a good Berean on this. What I want to show you is that the Lord's Supper backdrop is primarily a backdrop of two things that are intimately related. One, the act, is the Passover. So we'll, we'll talk about what the Passover is. And that single act is tied into a larger act, a much bigger picture, and that is the Exodus. So you may not know a lot about the Passover, but if you've read much of the Bible and have had any kind of uh, time within the church, you probably have heard the story of the Exodus. So as we look at the Old Testament backdrop, those are going to be the two things. Passover and the Exodus are going to be these two intimately tied together things that are going to give you the, the primer ready to understand what Jesus Christ is doing in the supper. So... Um, and and I, want you to, I want you to understand that because as we, as we come to the Old Testament and we see what is going on here and how Jesus understands himself to be in fulfillment of those things, we don't want to think that as we recount the story of the Exodus or we recount the event and the act of the Passover that it's just some weird thing that happened uh, that, that Jesus then takes over and just kind of does a redo on or something like that. We need to see that it's all tied together. There, there are uh, strings tied together on this thing. And we need to see that uh, the, the Passover and then going into the Lord's Supper, that the Lord's Supper is going to tell you something merely than Jesus Christ died. It's going to tell you why that's important. It's going to be able to explain a larger story to you of God bringing a people through exodus, of saving a people, of bringing them from bondage, judging their enemies, and then bringing them into a kingdom. That, that is going to kind of be this, this backdrop to you. And I want you to be able to see that. 
Because brethren, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, there is a lot more wrapped up. I'm telling you right now, there is a lot more wrapped up into it than what you think is wrapped up into it. More than God would allow your probably mind to be able to think of all at once. So we've got to see this. We've got to be able to see that the movement of Scripture is set in this kind of trajectory. That as, as we're thinking about a story, we think good stories, they, they go like this. They climb, they rise, they're climaxing, we're waiting for it. And the Bible does that for us, brethren. It doesn't disappoint in telling us the story. And I'm also this, I want you to be able to feel it. Right? I, I, I want you to be able to feel it. Because the Bible presents itself in narrative because it also wants you to feel. I want you to be convinced of that. I don't want you to think your Bible is a systematic theology textbook. It's not. It helps us get systematic theology. But brethren, it's more than that. This is God telling a story. And it's just like what's happened with... Nick, the other week, being able to come up here and pray for the shoemakers and tell some of that story. Brother, did it not bring some of you to tears? I mean, my, I don't know what was going on with me. My eyes were sweating. I don't know what that was. But I'm telling you, if we can tell stories that evoke emotion, and that emotion is supposed to be coupled with obedience, then so should God's story. So that when we're doing something like this, we're not just doing it out of remote obedience, brother. We're doing it because God has moved us by telling the story and we want to join Him in it. So I want you to, I want you to get both of those things. God has done things and we need to understand what those things are. So flip open Exodus chapter 12. Here's going to be the first part of this. Exodus chapter 12, going to begin here in verse 7 and 13, and then I'm going to jump around, and I'll let you know where I'm jumping around, but to give you the blaze through of Genesis up to this point, all you need to understand is this. God created man, and he's fallen under the dominion of sin. It rules him, right? Cain said, or, you know, God comes to Cain and says, Cain, sin's knocking at your door, and, it's, it, and it's, it is, its desire is to control you, to dominate you, have dominion over you. Well, and then what does it do? It dominates him. And God's people have been shown to be dominated by sin up until this point. They are utterly under its bondage, and literally, quite literally here, they, they are slaves in Egypt. That is their estate. They are slaves. And God is going to be able to start demonstrating something here that He is going to release His people from the dominion and rule of these Egyptians, these people who look like Satan. And He's going to show them that as He comes along with these promises and these acts, He's going to, he's going to win for them. He's going to redeem them. And that these things that they do are going to be a remembrance of this. So Exodus chapter 12, let's look at verse 7. I'm going to start right there, and then I'll tell you where I'm jumping around to. But here's what it says, Exodus 12, beginning verse 7. Then they, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the, do, uh, the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of uh, and you shall let excuse me none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And, hear this, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So here, here's, here's how it's painted right off the bat for you. And, but I, and I want you to notice what it says in here. Because we often have assumptions about what these events do in the Bible, what they are signified and what their significance means. And we don't actually just read it. And we don't just take it for what it says. So 
Often the Passover just gets described as, as God putting blood on their doorpost and then the angel of death is not going to come and kill them. And it's like, woo, you know, like for a kid, they're like, angel of death going to come kill people, right? And so, but that's all it's, that's all it's described as. It's just like this kind of arbitrary thing of you got to put the blood over there, right? Do your ritual. God's going to come through. He's going to judge people, but he won't judge you if you got the blood on the door. But brethren, that's not what it says. It says more than that, right? It, he's coming through to judge man and beast, the firstborn, and he's going to execute these judgments on them because they have defiled the land and they've sinned against God. But more importantly, these judgments are not just judgments upon the people. Who does he say that he's bringing judgment upon as well? The gods of Egypt. Brethren, the very gods that have dominated Egypt into sinful idolatry and rebellion, this Passover is not just a weird passing of God across His people because of blood on a door. It is actually Him coming to judge God's people's enemies and their gods. And it's to show them that those gods I have dominion over and I have dominion over these people and I will redeem you from that. I will have dominion over them and have victory over them. He says, I am the Lord. And then what will it become for them? Then it will become a sign. The blood becomes a sign after God acts and does what he says he's going to do. Not before. God acts, he tells them to do this, and then he says, then this will be a sign for you. And the point of this is this, brethren, this is how the Passover begins to be laid out for them. It's not just for them to remember God passing by them in judgment. It's so that they would first and foremost recall, you were passed over, and the Egyptians and their gods were judged. That's, that, that's where the sign lies. That's where this Passover begins. It's a remembrance of what God has done but it's also a sign as a celebration of victory. Because read in Exodus 14. Turn to Exodus 14. 30 to 31. And I want to connect this to you. I want to show you that this is actually the case. So a few chapters later, right now here comes the Exodus. Passover, what does he say? Have everything ready to go pretty much. Like have your car packed. Don't grab anything else. Just get in the car. Go. Because here's what's going to happen. You're going to go out. That great exodus is going to happen and God's people are going to leave and there's a purpose for it. And now I'm going to be able to tie for you why the exodus is not just some weird act God does. It's tied to Him judging and saving. So look at Exodus 14, verse 30. So this is after the exodus. Here's God's commentary on this. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw, excuse me, <clears throat> Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. So brethren, the, what's the intended result of the sign? What is the intended result now of God giving them the Passover meal? What is the sign? What is, is its significance and its remembrance? It's this. That you would see God has acted for you on your behalf. Your enemies lie dead before you. You lie now on dry ground redeemed. And you should fear and you should cause to worship the Lord and believe the servant He has given to the people. There's a purpose here. And so here, here's, the, here's this Passover. This is, here is the backdrop to this, brethren. The Passover is the sign of God stating that He's going to save His people by judging His enemies through the shedding of blood. And it's then going to be a sign and remembrance for God's people to recall that God has acted on their behalf. And I think this, and we'll see this as we go into the New Testament, that He's going to do it again. That this is how God is going to act on behalf of His people. 
He's going, to, he's going to act, and then the thing that He gives to them, that sign, will have significance because He's acted, because He's done something for them. So let's, let's flip to the New Testament. Let's see what Jesus does with this Passover and this Exodus imagery. But, brethren, as you can see, we read from Exodus 12, which is about the Passover, but it is intimately tied with the Exodus. You can't separate the two. They are both connected together, and for that very reason... And you're going to see that Jesus does the very same thing. And for the reason that I said, God has acted one way. And by doing so, he's telling you, here is how God is going to act on behalf of his people in the future. He's, it's like, pay attention. He, he redeemed them from Egypt, but obviously God's people need more than redemption from just Egypt. They need redemption from sin. That's what dominates them. It's not Pharaoh, it, it's sin. So as we're flipping to the New Testament... We're going to flip open to Luke chapter 9. Luke 9. So I want you to think, because we, we've talked about this before. We've used this imagery a lot before. We've used the language a lot before. The Son of Man, right? Jesus loves to use this phrase of Himself. Calls Himself the Son of Man. And in this reference, He's telling you that He is this new Adam. He's this... He's, he's the fulfillment of all of God's promises. He's going to be the Abraham's seed. He's going to be the, the prophet, the priest, and the king that comes up from the people of God. He's going to be David's heir that sits on his throne forever. And so Jesus constantly refers to himself as this, but he places that son of man imagery too. In what? His death and resurrection. What is his constant refrain to his disciples? The son of man must do what? Suffer, right? He says, son of, all, literally all over the place. I think five places in Matthew, a bunch of places in Luke. He says, tells his disciples, and they never get it right. The Son of Man must go to Jerusalem to suffer at the hands of the scribes and the Pharisees and then be raised on the third day. And then it says, poof, they didn't get it. <laughs> right? He says it over and over and over again. But that is what, is what it is tied to. And I want you to hear the way that Jesus describes his need to suffer in Jerusalem, to go to Jerusalem, to suffer and be raised on the third day and the way that he talks about it. Because here, here's going to be, because we're going to get into some, a lot of application, but here's the key theological hinge. Like here's the linchpin. If we don't get this and we don't get on this, we're going to miss the whole point of this. It's this idea that we have to get that Jesus is going to tie Passover into his death, burial, and resurrection because he ties the exodus into his death, burial, and resurrection. You following with me? You understand that? Jesus is going to take Passover and he's going to take Exodus and he's going to assume that his death and burial and his resurrection of going to Jerusalem to suffer at the hands of many will be in fulfillment and on the same story as the Passover and the Exodus. You understand? You tracking? That's, that's going to be the key here if we're going to understand the Lord's Supper and when we get to its seriousness and its significance in the New Testament is Jesus is tying these things together and He does so with extremely specific language. So let's consider some of these passages here. Luke chapter 9, we're going to begin uh, in verse 18 and then I'm going to read down a, a little bit because I want you to kind of hear how Luke already builds this together for us. So Luke 9, 18 this is Peter confessing Jesus as the Christ. So now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who did the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah and others that none of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, And here's one of those sayings, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now flip over just a few verses to verse 28. Same chapter, just down to verse 28. Right? So I didn't, I didn't tell you anything you already didn't know. All Jesus tells him is, look, Son of Man's got to go to Jerusalem and he's got to be put to death and then he'll be raised on the third day. This is to fulfill Scripture. All right? So you're like, okay, well... How are you tying this together? Right. Verse 28, just forget your verse numbers and your chapter and your uh, section headings are there for a second. This is part of this same trajectory right here. So Luke 9, 28. 
Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, I'm going to be the dude that beats this drum a thousand times and I don't care. This just this this text has just changed my life for so many different ways and I wanted to do it for you. But there is so much built into this text that I could just go on rabbit trails. But look probably in your Bible, you got a one right there and you probably have a word down in the the gutter of your Bible that says in Greek, it's telling you how it's often translated in Greek and it says what? Someone tell Boom. Exodus. Whoa. Okay. So we just read that Jesus is telling his disciples, I got to go to Jerusalem and suffer at the hands of the elders and chief priests be killed, rise on the third day. Okay, we get that. Well, how's that have to deal with Exodus and, and, and Passover and all these different things? Because Jesus says that's what he's accomplishing. It says Moses and Elijah, which you could say the entire Old Testament, right? The entire Old Testament is standing there talking with Jesus and bearing witness with him that what he was about to go accomplish was his exodus. That's what he's doing. So right here, Jesus connects the event of the exodus and by implication, Passover, and he now is equating it in its fulfillment and what he's going to do in his death, burial, and resurrection. He makes it in in no uncertain terms, brethren. That is what is going on right here. So here's this vital linchpin connection now. Jesus going up is going to be a fulfillment and a redisplay of the exodus in the past, but it's going to be way greater than that exodus. It's going to go way beyond that exodus. Why? Because it's actually going to now be a sign for the people who have been forgiven of their sin and not just redeemed from Egypt. It's going to change. It's going to transform. So here, here, here a little bit more of this. This is Luke 12. Luke chapter 12. I'm going to start in verse 49. Here's what Jesus says He came to do as He comes to earth in His, in his first advent. Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that it were already kindled. 50. Verse 50. What does He say? I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. So, I want you to now think, why is he talking about baptism now? Right. So, so this, I, I kind of I like preloaded, like, I've, I've kind of like prefronted this up for you so you could not like go, what, what are you talking about? Okay. So we just talked about Exodus and Passover. And what does Jesus do? He links the two together. What happens in the Exodus? Do they pass through something? Water. Yeah, right? A lot of water, right? I don't care what the liberals say. They didn't walk through like a puddle, right? God split some water aside and they walked through on dry ground. And it was enough water to drown all the Egyptians. Okay? Just, there's a lot of water. And now Jesus is describing what he came to do, and the kind of baptism that he needs to undergo. And he is saying his distress is great. Because what is this distress? Brethren, he's, he's going to his death. And he's describing it as a baptism of passing through waters. Like the Exodus. You hear that? He's, going, he's got a baptism. He has an exodus to do, an exodus to perform, a baptism to go under. Listen to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. This is, this is the same thing again. You're going to hear this, this constant theme. Because what's this distress? You're thinking, well, that's not very clear. He just says it's his distress. Okay, let me just reiterate another one of these. This is how Jesus describes in multiple different ways what he's going to go accomplish, what he's going to go do. What does it say in 21 that we've already read? From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. 
So, brethren, in no uncertain terms, every time Jesus talks about what he's going to do, the distress that he's going to go under, anything of him and John praying to the Father and saying, Lord, take this cup from me, right? This cup that you're giving me, this is not a nice cup. This is not a cup of cold water. This is a cup that Jesus must drink and bear because it is him accomplishing uh, the salvation of God's people by him going through wrath. If Jesus is describing his exodus and what he's going to accomplish on the cross as a baptism, well, Jesus died, brethren. What does that say? He didn't just pass through safe. Yeah, he was resurrected. He was vindicated. Brethren, do you recall that your Savior died? And there's a reason for that. Brethren, he passed through and the waters fell on him. Unlike Israel passing through safe on dry ground, the flood waters didn't come on the Egyptians. They came on Jesus. You hear that? Engulfed by God's wrath. So you can imagine every time Jesus says this, he's pulling from this Old Testament to say, how great a distress to go through, brethren. I'm going to Jerusalem, setting his face towards this, to be judged. Ultimately, to be, to be raised and vindicated. But brethren, we can't miss this. He took on the floodwaters of God's wrath. He relived the exodus for you. But unlike Israel, Israel didn't deserve to go through. And you don't either. You don't deserve to walk through unscathed. You deserve to wash up on the seashore like the Egyptians. And brethren, it fell upon Jesus Christ. So I just I, I want you to be convinced that this, this is the theological backdrop to the Lord's Supper. And we're going to go through the next three parts here. But you have to have that in mind as we begin to describe these different things. And we think of the examination, if we think of the warnings, if we think of why we would protect the Lord's Supper and of its benefits for you. And brethren... Hopefully now when I give you the benefits, you're more convinced of these benefits because you understand that when Jesus starts talking about the supper and you now understand how it's linked to the Old Testament and it flows into the New Testament, you understand it and you feel it. He passed through a baptism of God's wrath so that you could experience an exodus. I want you to have that in mind. You need to feel that. If, brethren, listen, if we can't feel that, I can tell you the act, I can tell you the examination, and I can tell you the benefits. And I'll tell you, go blue in the face. Could teach it to you for two straight hours, and it won't mean anything. The act will be pointless. We want to be people like the people in the Old Testament that when God said, listen, it's going to be a sign for you after I act, and then the act happens, and they fall down and they worship. And they fear the Lord. And they listen to His servant. And brethren, that's what I want for us. I want us to fear God. I want us to look to His servant, Jesus Christ, and obey Him and love Him. And that's only going to happen if we understand that and we feel the weight of that. So there's your theological backdrop. The Lord's Supper is God's plan that was shown in, in, a, in a story in the past, in the Exodus, in the Passover, that has now been fulfilled in Jesus Christ in the Lord's Supper and in His death, burial, and resurrection. So let's actually look at this now a little bit so we can see some of these elements, talk a little bit about this, and start making some application to this. So let's actually talk about, okay, what is in the Lord's Supper? Like, what is just the basics of the Lord's Supper? So Let's go back to Luke 22. Some of these scriptures will be camping out and you just can't escape it. You're going to talk about a topic, you'll probably be in a few scriptures all the time. So Luke chapter 22, we're, just, we're going to kind of camp out right here to uh, examine the Lord's Supper. And as we be begin to move through the examination, the benefits, I'm going to continue to draw this back to that theological background as we think of how we're going to apply this as a church. But church, as we think about this second part, the act of us doing the Lord's Supper, we need to think first of all, okay, what are, what are we even taking in the Lord's Supper? Like, 
All right, can we take crackers and orange juice? You know, can we have an M&M instead of bread? Like, can we just do whatever we want in the Lord's Supper? So I would, I would have you to pay attention to what Scripture says and what Jesus Christ institutes for us as His church. So here's Luke 22, beginning in verse 14. I'm going to read it down to verse 20, and then we're just going to kind of uh, comb through it. So Luke 22, And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. So here's this first element that he's bringing in. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So he presents to us this fruit of the vine, this cup, to his disciples. And he gives it to them. Then in verse 19, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, So now he's going to give you a little bit more about the cup. Here's what he says about it. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So, brethren, it is, it is not chocked full of details. This is not a large menu right here. The Lord Jesus gives us two things right here. He gives us the cup and the cup of wine, and He gives us bread. He blesses one and hands it out, and He breaks one and He hands it out. And what does He say in both instances? He tells them, as the other Gospels say, do this in remembrance of me. This is my body. This is my blood. This is the cup of the new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. So brother, it's, it's, it's very straightforward here. This, do, this ha doesn't need to be complicated. There are two things here. There is bread and there is wine. Now, I understand that in bringing up both of those, one of them is like, okay, that's easy, right? Bread, all right, we all like to eat bread. That's, that's not a big deal when we hear bread and wine. But I know for a fact that as soon as I say wine, we all kind of go, like we kind of squirm in our seat a little bit. And brethren, I, 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 want, I want to be clear in saying this. What Jesus Christ has instituted for us here, we believe here that we don't have a right to change this. Now, I'm saying that not because I'm here to talk about any other church who does differently than we are going to desire to do differently here. But brethren, there is no escaping what the church of what Jesus and his disciples partook of and what the church partook of as they partook of the Lord's Supper. It is very clear. Now, this does not give you excuse for you to then jump on some alcohol bandwagon and go way off in the distance where the text does not go. And I don't want to go there. Brethren, I simply want us to give attention to what the Lord Jesus Christ is instituting for us here. He says, this is the cup of the new covenant. It's the cup of the grape of the vine. It's wine, brethren. He's given it to us for a reason. And there's a whole host of reasons we can go into in the Old Testament for why that cup would be there. But suffice it to say, all the reasons we could go to in the Old Testament... Right here is one for us. Jesus commands it. Right? That's, that should be easy enough for us. That should be simple enough for us. That as we perform this act of bread and wine, this is what the Lord's Supper is composed of in its, in its elements. These are the things that we partake of. This is what we are partaking as we do it. Now I understand that when it comes to wine, that that is a touchy subject for some people. And we also understand that people have different backgrounds and people come out of different things when it comes to things related to alcohol. And this is by no means a place for this to cause division here in this church. We are always to think of the other brother in love and not in judgment. So brethren, as we seek to partake of these here, what we are going to be doing is going to be having bread and wine. And if you have questions about that, if you have an uneasiness about that, just come talk with us. Just come talk with us. That's all we ask and desire for you for. And as you think about what we're going to be putting before you to partake of, uh, this, I'm not going to be handing you a bottle of wine and a loaf of bread, 
right? We're going to do what Jesus Christ and the disciples did. They broke the bread and gave thanks, and then we're going to give it to you, brethren. We're going to administer it to you as your under-shepherds uh, underneath the Lord Jesus Christ as our shepherd. And we're also going to give you the cup. But brethren, that, that, that cup that they would have partook of would have been alcohol that would have been so low, I don't think my little kid could have tasted it probably. So I, I just, I want to... I want. I don't. Not usually the guy who likes to do caveats and sermons, but I, I feel the need to do that. But the Lord Jesus Christ, He has instituted that, and I'm not here to debate with how other people want to read this or what they want to do. But brethren, the text says that, and we feel obligated that we need to follow what Jesus Christ has instituted for us because we think it honors Him. That's all we're trying to do. We're trying to honor Jesus Christ in, in partaking of this way. And so we ought to partake of the elements in the way that Jesus Christ has given it to us. So there's the elements in the act. But here's the next one, the process. And now, as we read through this, as you think about how Jesus describes this, and then what Paul will go on later to say in, in 1 Corinthians 11, of describing what he received from the Lord, he also gave to the Corinthians. And he repeats almost verbatim what Jesus Christ says to his disciples when it comes to the Lord's Supper. So as we think about this process, I just want to lay out for you a little bit of how we're going to do this. So as we, as we think of this process of partaking of the Lord's Supper, as you guys know, we usually sing a few songs. We have our scripture readings, and then we go into a third song. But as we begin to do this, instead of having a, uh, just from the third song going into the sermon, after that third song is when we're going to go into the Lord's Supper. And we want to do it, you know, that way for a, a few reasons. One, and as we're going to read, the Lord's Supper is in one way a time for you to come and to confess sin. And brethren, the scripture would tell you that don't come to God's altar with anger or bitterness or sin and give your gift. You need to take care of that. You need to make sure that when you partake of something like this, that there is not sin clouding your partaking of it. And you're going to get reasons why. You're going to get warnings why we ought not to do that. But that's one reason why we want to do that. There's going to be a confession of sin. And so, brethren, we're also going to be asking the church this. We're going to be asking you all to confess that together up here. We want to see the church week in and week out, two of you at a time, to be able to come up here and to be able to pray and to help the church confess sin corporately. Now, this is not me calling you to spill out your life and all your guts right here before people and then go, all right, who's ready to partake? And then everyone's like, awkward, right? But, but seriously, the people of God throughout the Bible have always confessed sin corporately. And God's promise does not change. If you come unto me and confess your sin, you draw near to me. What does God say He's going to do with us, brethren? He's going to draw near to us. So we need to come. We need to confess sin. And we want to do this corporately. And brethren, one reason for this is we want you to be active in this. Because so often what happens in churches is this just becomes remote just becomes a merry-go-round that just keeps going around and around and around. And it, it just becomes this remote thing that people do. And people become disengaged. Brother, there's going to be warnings against that. Of a church becoming disengaged from the body and blood of Jesus Christ in the Lord's Supper. There's going to be warnings for that. We don't want that. We want you to come ready. We want you to come uh, prepared, and we want the church to be able to come confessing sin rightly and then partaking because another reason we want to do this too is this. The Lord's Supper is presented in the Scripture as a visible representation of the Gospel. All right. so th there's the phrase, you know, to, to preach the, the Gospel, use words if necessary, and obviously that's not true. But in the Lord's Supper, you can preach the Gospel without using words if you understand it rightly. As Paul's going to say, don't come unto it unless you can divide the body and the blood rightly. But if you can, brethren, it's a display, it's like a reenactment right before you. It's like a little, like a little show going on right here before you of what Jesus Christ has done. Because what do we do? We're breaking the bread like his body was broken, and we're drinking the cup of his blood, of God's wrath in his blood being spilt. And it's a picture of that. And so part of this process is, is this. So we're going to be breaking the bread. 
We, 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 want, we want this to be as visible and as emotionally wrought as possible because that is what God, and that's what Jesus has desired for us to, to see it as. He wants us to be able to, to come into this with, with all of our mind and with all of our soul and with all of our strength. We don't want to just do this mentally and then check out. We want to be engaged. And uh, next, brother, we want to partake of this together. We want this to be a, a process in which we partake of this as a body, as we come together to do this, that we partake of this corporately and that we do this together as a church. So part of this process is going to get into this, frequency. Different churches have different reasons for this, but I think our reason is going to come down to simply what we think Scripture has to say. And that is, we think Scripture would have us to partake of this every time we come to gather together as a church. And brethren, as, as we look through the benefits of this at the end, which I'm like, I just can't wait to get there right now. The benefits of it, you wouldn't want it any other way. And, and, and let me throw this out here because there are good, godly men who lead their churches in different ways. And here is often one of the reasons why they don't do it weekly. They say, well, listen, we don't want the church, like just what I was telling you, we, we want you guys to be involved so it doesn't become remote. Well, if we do it every week, it's going to become remote. So people are shy to do it every single week in their frequency because they think, well, the people are just going to partake of this. And then there's just going to be another ritual that the church does, just another show. But brother, let me ask you this. Would you say that about prayer? Paul tells you as you come together, sing songs together. Be filled with the Spirit by singing hymns. Is that going to become remote? It could. Right, brother? The answer to that could always be yes. And that's just the point. There, there, there's somewhat of an absurdity to it to say, if if God has instituted something for us to do as a church and there's a blessing for us to do it as we come together as a church, why would we not pursue it? Brother, the shame will be on us if it doesn't bless us. But God's blessing is not removed because we do it weekly. It's our fault if the blessing is removed. It's our fault if we come and instead of it being a blessing, as Paul's going to say later, it becomes a judgment. Brethren, that's our fault. So we can't look at something like that and say, well, we don't want it to become remote. Brethren, if it becomes remote, then shame on us. But God has given it to us to be a blessing. And as you think of this, I, here's, I got two, two quick scriptures. I don't even want you to open up to this. I just want you to hear, when Paul talks about this, how off the cuff he says it, right? It's like, there's no chapter in Scripture like, hey, you know, turn your Bibles to 3 Corinthians chapter 3 so we can discuss, you know, Paul's section on how often the church ought to partake of this. Like, it's not even an issue in the church of how often they should partake of this. It's so assumed that he can just throw out, like, off-the-cuff things right here. So this is 1 Corinthians 11, and this is right at the beginning of his discussion on the Lord's Supper in verse 17 and 18. And just, just hear it. You'll hear it. It may pass by you, but I'll, I'll let you know if you miss it. Right, verse 17, but in the following instructions, he's given them this new list now. And in the following instructions, he says, I do not commend you. He's commended them on some things. This is not one of them. The Lord's Supper, he's not commending them on. Why? Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, is it not the Lord's Supper that you eat? For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you on this? No, I will not. Brethren, what's he rebuking them for? They're not partaking of the supper rightly. Well, when do they partake of it? Did you catch it? What he says? When you come together. And then he makes it even more explicit. When you come together as a church. That is, and I, we could go through Acts, we could go through other uh, scripture texts in the New Testament where it is said like that in passing so quick 
that if you just read it, if you just breeze by it because you don't think it's an important detail, you'll just miss it. But brethren, the assumption is every single time they came together as a church, he's like, listen, I'm hearing about this, which means there's history to this problem, that there's factions growing among you because every time you come together, you're partaking of the meal and some are going hungry and they're not getting it. That's just, that is just how implied it is in the New Testament that when the church comes together to meet as a church, they have every right and every obligation to be partaking of the Lord's Supper. So, brethren, we, we feel compelled by that and by uh, all the benefits that the Lord Jesus gives us in, in the Lord's Supper. Why else would we not partake of it every single week? It'd be like asking us to not pray every week, brother. I don't, I don't have any other answer for you just besides to say, well, if it's been given to us to bless us, why would we not do it? So there's that. So let's, let's, let's get into this back half now. There is the act. The elements, our process. I probably missed a few details. So Nick can come clean up and um, help me out next week if I forgot anything. But frequency, why we're doing what we're doing. I want you to understand that. But now you kind of have like a theological backdrop to this, right? You understand the act. You understand the theological backdrop to it. So now I think we'll begin to understand why Scripture in these two areas are going to be extremely serious, not only in its warnings, but in its blessings. And I'm, I'm, I'm talking extreme seriousness in this, something that the church does not give to this. So let's begin on the one side, the examination. And if you're already there writing 1 Corinthians 11, um, I read that one section, 1 Corinthians 11, 27, or excuse me, a 17 to 22. This next section is going to pick up in, in, in uh, verse 27. So 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27. So as we just read, Paul is not commending on this, right? They are not coming to the Lord's Supper right. right. If you come to the Lord's Supper and there's factions among you, church, we're doing it wrong. We're not doing it right. So Paul tells them, look, this is what I've received from the Lord. You all eat like this in disunity? Well, this is what the Lord gave me. And he gives a, a repetition of what Jesus says to his disciples at the Last Supper. Right? He, he gives the same thing. And then in verse 26, he says this, For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And then 27, he's going to give you why this warning is so strong here. Listen to what he has to say. Verse 27, Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Just want you to dwell on that for a second. Whoever, therefore, comes to the Lord's Supper, if you come to Christ's table in an unworthy manner, you will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. He's going to spell that out for us, but, but church, here's part of this first examination. There's an examination that's going to have to go into this for us as we approach the Lord's Supper. And this first one is a warning for us. And it's a very, it's a, it's a very dire warning. If you come in an unworthy manner, you can expect nothing but guilt to be remaining upon you of partaking wrongly. And here's what he has to say in 28. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So notice... You want to partake in the cup and in the bread? There's an examination that must be done for each individual within the church. Now, this is not just us corporately examining ourselves and confessing sin. This is every single one of you sitting there about to partake, and he calls us to say, listen, let a person examine himself so that he can eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Why? Verse 29, for... If anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, brethren, this text is often stated in churches as a reason why you don't let unbelievers partake with you. But who is this first and foremost to? It's to the church. 
This is not just a statement about, yeah, make sure people who aren't Christians who come to your gatherings don't partake because they'll partake in another unworthy manner. It's like, well, of course. Of course that's an unworthy manner. They don't believe the very thing they're partaking in. But he tells it to Christians, tells it to the church. If you eat and drink without discerning the body, you're going to eat and drink judgment on yourself. And what does that mean, brother? What does it mean? It's kind of a weird phrase, right? If anyone eats and drinks without discerning the body, brethren, I think it means this, that as you come to the table, you understand the backdrop that I gave you. Now, I'm not saying every detail in the backdrop, but you at least understand what Paul just previously said. Paul says, for I received this, because you've forgotten this. You partake in an unworthy manner in part because you have not remembered the way I've received the Lord's Supper and the way I gave it to you. And that's when you come together, you discern it rightly. You discern it as Christ shedding His blood for you. Of making a new covenant for His people. Of His body being broke for you. You understand that? Because if we were to draw ourselves back to that, back to the gospel, back to the death of Jesus, do you, if that was our initial starting point, what factions were there, would there be? But if we come and partake of this in an unworthy manner, if we come and we take it flippantly, if we come and we take it and there is factions among us, if we come and we take it and there is sin in our heart against our brother and them against us, then God tells you you're eating and drinking without properly discerning the body and the blood. You're not understanding. It's a gospel ordinance for you. This is a gospel act presented before you. And so when you come and you partake of it, you need to be warned that you don't do this and cause division and one goes full and drunk and the other goes hungry. If we do this, church, we can't expect God to come and bless this and it be a blessing to us. We have to be able to come and to examine ourselves and to be able to discern the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus as we partake. We have to be able to do that. Because verse 30 is this. That is why, listen to this, this is to Christians. This is to Christians. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Brethren, that is not a text about unbelievers. Get that out of your mind. He's telling that to the church. We need to take that warning seriously. Some are sick and ill. Some people died. God judged them. But notice what he says in 31. Right? This is not just a warning to make people not partake anymore. Verse 31. But if we judged ourselves truly we would not be judged. Remember, that's just him restating what he said before. Listen, if we would come and examine ourselves and discern the body and the blood, we won't be judged. If we come ready to participate and partake of this in a heart that is desiring and intending to obey Jesus Christ into this and to examine ourselves and to examine and discern what we're doing, then we won't be judged. He says, we, you would not be judged. But 32, listen, but when we are judged by the Lord, notice what kind of judgment it is. He says, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So, brethren, this, this discipline, this judgment comes into the church as God's hand of firmness, but of fatherly firmness to come into his children and say, listen, you need to stop what you're doing. You need to partake of this rightly or you would find yourself condemned along with the world. Brethren, it's, it's for our benefit and for our good, but the warning nonetheless stands. We have to come and examine ourselves. We have to be able to discern what we are doing. And brethren, you now know what you are doing. You understand what is in there from hearing these words. So as you continue and as we come to the Lord's table in these coming weeks, Examine it. Discern it. Examine yourself. Don't come partaking wrongly. So there's the warning. 
Now here is the second part, and I think this one is going to come by implication. And I could not find a better word for this. I'm just going to explain the word, fencing. Okay, you don't need to call it this. It's the only word I had. Brethren, if it hasn't been abundantly clear to you now, then I don't know how else to make it abundantly clear. The Lord's Supper is for those whom have trusted in Jesus Christ. Right? The people who partake of the sign are the people who've been redeemed. Right? Egyptians did not come out of the Red Sea and partake. Right? They, they did not have the blood. They did not partake of the benefits. They were judged. Israel partook of the benefits. They partook of it because they had the blood. So when Jesus sheds his blood and he breaks his body, those who partake are those who have been joined to Jesus. They are those who have placed their trust in him. And so by implication, the ones whom he's giving it to are his people. The Lord's Supper is not a supper for people to come and be religious. It is not for people to come in here to partake of who are not Christians. And this is important. If you've, if you've ever heard of any kind of stories in church history, probably one you will probably hear of one day is of what John Calvin did for the Lord's Supper. So not even talking about unbelievers. Well, actually, maybe, probably unbelievers. They were just baptized when they were infants, and then voila, they're, they're Christians. But he would fence off, meaning like he would guard it. That's what I'm saying by fencing. Like, Lord's Supper's right here. The man's behind the pulpit. People are partaking. And he would not allow people to partake in an unworthy manner. If you had unconfessed sin, if you were known to be something in the town, if you, were, if you were known that your baptism was nothing more than you got wet as an infant and nothing else, he fenced and guarded that table. He guarded it, brother. Because if this, think about this. The implication for why Christians do this is if God's people can partake in an unworthy manner, why on earth would you allow somebody to come into the church who's not a Christian and partake? You get that? If you can't come in and discern the body rightly and so you don't partake until you have made right with somebody else or you have confessed sin to God, why on earth would you allow somebody from the world to come in and to drink judgment upon themselves? Brethren, that fencing is important. We are to guard this because this is the Lord's Supper. It's His. He owns it. He's the one who gives it and distributes it, and He has a right to give it to His people. We don't have a right to give it out willy-nilly, to do what we please with it. And so that fencing needs to be there. And so, brethren, I would exhort you in this. This does not need to be a full-throated rebuke of somebody who wants to come into this church but you do need to consider that as you bring people into the church who may be guests who are visiting who are not Christians, that you would think rightly about not only how you're discerning the body, but how you're discerning it for somebody else. If somebody comes in and they are not a Christian, you have an obligation to ask them to please not partake. And brethren, that's not to just exclude somebody to make them feel like they're not a part of a club. It's that they would not partake in an unworthy manner. Brethren, if Christians can do it, the world for sure by default will partake of it in an unworthy manner. They don't discern the body and the blood. They don't. So we need, to be, we need to be mindful of that as we come and partake of this in the coming weeks. We want people to come. We want people to come and hear God's word preached. We want them to hear the gospel. We want them to see the love of Christ's fellowship. But we don't want them to do something that is going to be against their greatest benefit and for their judgment. We don't. So the best way we could love people who come in here is that we would just simply be able to tell them, hey, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're going to ask that you don't take it. Because this is for people who trust in Jesus Christ, who have committed themselves and followed and bend the knee and, and, and have called Him Lord. And so we have to be able to do that. So there's the examination. And brother, and I want to end with this on the benefits because this is, this is really where I think we need to be able to embrace this as a church so that we would have a desire and a burning to do this every week. So I'm going to present it in this way. These, these benefits come in three different ways. A past benefit, future benefit, and then a present benefit. And I put them in that order because I want to save the present one for last. So the past. Got a couple scriptures here. 
So we've already read some of this, right? Luke chapter 22, and you don't need to turn there. We've already read it. Luke chapter 22, Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper, and he's telling them, why are they to partake of the Lord's Supper? Because they're to do it in remembrance of him. Right? So there is something that has happened in the past that Jesus has accomplished that as we now as the church partake of this, we remember what Jesus Christ has done. And you can think about what Paul also says of this. The reason that we continue as often as we meet to eat and drink of this is to remember what Jesus Christ has done first and foremost. That is just the implication. That is part of that past benefit for you is as you partake, as that visible presentation of the gospel is before you partake, brethren, you're remembering the gospel afresh for another week. Christ had to break his body. He had to shed his blood for you. Remember that as you partake. Remember that. The floodwaters came upon him for you. Remember that. There's a past benefit in doing that.